Hey guys, it's Sunday reading day, and I'll be reading from the book 25 Ghost Stories, written by various authors. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you had a great weekend. I know I did. I've been relaxing. I... Kind of took a couple nights off here to just do do my own thing. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigations here based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you ha- think you have a paranormal problem, we can get to you. It might take us a while, but we can definitely get to you. Uh, in the case that it takes us longer than it should, we have psychics on staff who can phone you, and if it is something that they deem paranormal, then they can calm down the energy. If, if necessary, okay, until we can get out there. But usually it doesn't take more than two or three days for us to respond out there. Because, we, like I said, we have people all over the state. But California is a big state. Anyway, if you're watching from Facebook today, and most of you are, please uh, feel free to follow if you haven't done so already. And uh, leave us a thumbs up if you like what you hear and see. You know, leave us a thumbs up, happy face, heart. Because that uh, helps us with the FYP. You can even leave comments in, in, in the chat room. Because what that does is Facebook has a master computer that sees all these shows. And if it sees like a lot of activity for a particular show, it puts you out further in, into the internet netherworld, right? That place where Mario goes. It puts you out there. Just like with uh, YouTube works the same way. If you haven't subscribed yet, you like what you hear in CNA, please feel free to do it to uh, subscribe. I'm always looking for subscribers, trying to hit that thousand mark, getting closer, inching closer. And also, happy faces, hearts, and all that good stuff. Okay, please feel free to do that. And chat the chat room. And that goes for TikTok, that goes for Twitch, or any other social media place where we might be broadcasting. I'd really appreciate it. You can find California Haunts. You can find the team on Facebook. Uh, the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. You can find our meetup, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team there. And you can find us as California Haunts Radio. And if you Google California if you Google any of those, we're going to pop right up for you, okay? Because we're all over the Internet. All right, that being said, today we're changing books. Today is Sunday, and for the people that aren't used to seeing me on a Sunday, uh, today is Sunday, and this is the day that, uh, you know, because it's, it's still a day of rest, right, for everybody after maybe you've been out on a trip, you just got home, having dinner, or doing whatever, you know, and you're finally settling down in front of the fire, listening, listening to me, or I even have people who carry me in their pocket when they're cleaning house. Whatever works, that's what I say. Anyway, so... um. Just relax. You know, the whole thing is to relax and listen to me as I tell stories. The last book we read, that I read, I say we because I got a whole united front backing me here. The last book that I read were true ghost stories written by uh, paranormal investigators. This week, I'm not sure what they are. These are, we have 25 stories written by different uh, authors. You know, Edgar Allan Poe and people like that. So I'm going to be reading from that. It should be an interesting read because this is for you to judge whether or not these things are real. 
All right. So what I'm going to do is I got my tablet set up and I, I, I got my uh, Axios tablet set up. I'm going to be reading off that so I can look at the chat room at the same time for, for a change, you know, instead of reading it off the computer screen. And I will read for about an hour and uh, then I'll let you guys go back to your business and we'll talk tomorrow with stuff. And there's only one thing I want to add is I've kind of been messing up the date for the class next weekend. The class is not Sunday. The class is Saturday the 9th. Okay, I keep saying the 10th. The Saturday night at 3 p.m. Pacific. And you can get to that class by visiting the California Haunts Meetup, which is just typing, again, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. All right. So without further ado, I'm going to be reading from 25 Ghost Stories. And let me do one thing really quick, and then we'll get the suggested and get the show on the road, as they say. Okay, let me get in the chat room. I'm going to have to watch the time on this. I'm going to enlarge it so I can see the time. Okay, so here we go, and I hope you enjoy this book. And, uh, again, thank you, Michelle, for the tablet. Love the tablet. Okay. The first story we have is called The Flayed Hand. Let me get comfortable here. Let me assume my position. So the first story we have is called The Flayed, whoa, the flayed Hand, and it's by Guy de Maspassant. M-A-U-P-A-S-S-A-N-T. So here we go. One evening, about eight months ago, I met with some college comrades at the lodgings of our friend Louis R. We drank punch and smoked, talked of literature and art, and made jokes like any other company of young men. Suddenly, the door flew open, and one, who had been my friend, since shy since boyhood, burst in like a hurricane. Guess where I came from, he cried. I bet I'm a beetle, responded one. No, said another. You are too gay. You come from borrowing money. Now remember, these books were written. This one especially was it was I believe that it was uh, the late 1800s for this one as well. You come from borrowing money, from borrowing from burying, from burying a rich uncle, or from pawning your watch. You're getting sober, cried a third. And as as you and as you scented the punch in Miss Lewis's bowl, you came up here to get drunk again. You're all wrong, he replied. I came from P. Enormity, where I have spent eight days, and once I have brought one of my, one of my friends, I, I have brought one of my friends, a great criminal, who I asked permission to present to you. With these words, he drew from his pocket a long black hand from which the skin had been stripped. It had been severed at the wrist. Its dry and shriveled shape, and the narrow yellow nails still clinging to the fingers, made it frightful to look upon. The muscles, which showed that his first owner had been possessed of great strength, were bound in place by a strip of parchment like skin. Just fancy, said my friend, the other day they sold the effects of an old sorcerer, recently deceased, well known in all the country. Every Saturday night he used to go to witch gatherings on a broomstick. He practiced white magic and black magic, gave blue milk to the cows, and made them wear tails like that of the companion of St. Anthony. Doesn't Luke Skywalker drink blue milk? Okay. Well, he's got the force going on, right? The old scoundrel always had a deep affection for his hand, which, he said, was that of a celebrated criminal. Executed in 1736 for having thrown his lawful wife headfirst into a well, for which I do not blame him. And then, hanging in the belfry, the priest would marry him. After this double exploit, he went away, and during his subsequent career, which was brief but exciting. He robbed twelve travelers, smoked a score of monks in their monastery, and made a suraglio of a convent. Sorry about that. But what are you going to do with this horror? We cried. Eh, parbleu. 
I will make it the handle to my doorbell and frighten my creditors. My friend, said Henry Smith, a big Englishman, I believe that the hand is only a kind of Indian meat, preserved by a new process. I advise you to make bouillon out of it. Rail not, messieurs, said. He said, with the utmost sang free, a medical student who was three-quarters drunk. But if you follow my advice, Pierre, you will give this piece of human debris Christian burial, for fear lest its owner should come to demand it. Then, too, this hand has acquired some bad habits for you, another prophet, who was killed will kill. And who has drink, has drunk will drink, replied the host, as he poured out a big glass of punch for the student, who emptied it, as, who emptied it at a drought and slid dead drunk under the table. His sudden dropping out of the company was greeted with a burst of laughter, and Pierre, ra raising his glass and saluting the hand, cried, I drink to the next visit of thy master. Then the conversation turned upon the other subjects, and shortly afterward each returned to his lodging. About two o'clock the next day, as I was passing Pierre's door, I entered and found him reading and smoking. Well, how goes it, said I. Very well, he responded. And your hand? My hand? My hand? Did you not see it on the door pole? I put it there when I returned home last night. But, apropos of this, what do you think? Some idiot, doubtless to play a stupid joke on me, came ringing at my door towards midnight. I demanded who was there, but as no one replied, I went back to bed again to sleep. At this moment, the door opened, and the landlord, a fat, extremely impertinent person, entered without saluting us. Sir, he said, I pray you take away immediately that carrion which you have hung by a bell pull. Unless you do this, I shall be compelled to ask you to leave. Sir, responded Pierre, with much gravity, you insult a hand which does not merit it. Know you that it belonged to a man of high breeding. The landlord turned on his heel and made his exit, without speaking. Pierre followed him, detached the hand, and affixed it to the bell cord hanging in his alcove. That is better, he said. This hand, like the brother, all must die. Of the Trappist, will give my thoughts a serious turn every night before I sleep. At the end of an hour, he left and returned, at the end of the hour, I left and returned to my own apartment. I slept badly the following night, was nervous and agitated, and several times awoke with a start. Once I imagined even that a man had broken into my room, and I sprang up and searched the closets and under the bed. Towards six o'clock in the morning, I was commencing to doze at last, when a loud knocking at my door made me jump from my couch. It was my friend Pierre's servant, half-dressed, pale, and trembling. Ah, sir, cried, the, cried he, sobbing, my poor master, someone has murdered him. I dressed myself hastily and ran to Pierre's lodgings. The house was full of people disputing together, and everything was in, in a commotion. Everyone was talking at the same time, recounting and commenting on the concurrence in all sorts of ways. With great difficulty, I reached the bedroom, made myself known to those guarding the door, and was permitted to enter. Four agents of police were standing in the middle of the apartment, pencils in hand, examining every detail, conferring in low voices, and writing from time to time in their notebooks. Two doctors were in consultation by the bed on which lay the unconscious form of Pierre. He was not dead, but his face was fixed in an expression of the most awful terror. His eyes were open their widest, and the dilated, the, the, the dilated pupils seemed to regard it fixedly with unspeakable horror, something unknown and frightful. His hands were clenched. I raised the quilt which covered his body from the chin downward, and saw in his neck, deeply sunk in the flesh, the marks of fingers. Some drops of blood spotted his shirt. At that moment, one thing struck me. I chanced to notice that the shriveled hand was no longer attached to the, bed, to the bell cord.
The doctors have doubtless removed it to avoid the comments of those entering the chamber where the wounded man lay, because the, because the appearance of this hand was indeed frightful. I do not inquire what had become of it. I now clip. I now have a clip from the newspaper the next day, the story of the crime, with all the details that the police were able to procure. A frightful attempt was made yesterday on the life of young M. Pierre B. Student, who lives, I mean, who belongs to one of the best families in Normandy. He returned home about ten o'clock in the evening and excused his valet, Bobby, from further attendance upon him, saying that he felt fatigued and was going to bed. Towards midnight, Balvin was suddenly awakened by the furious ringing of his master's bell. He was afraid, and lighted a lamp and waited. The bell was silent about a minute, then rang again with such a, vent, a vehemence that the domestic, mad, mad with fright, flew from his room to awaken the concierge, who ran to summon the police, and at the end of about fifteen minutes, two policemen forced open the door. A horrible sight met their eyes. The furniture was overturned, giving evidence of a fearful struggle between the victim and his assailant. In the middle of the room, upon his back, his body rigid, with livid face, with livid face and frightfully dilated eyes, lay motionless young Pierre B., bearing upon his neck the deep imprints of five fingers. Dr. Bourdin was called immediately, and his report says that the aggressor must have been possessed. A strong strength, and have had extraordinarily thin and sinewy hand. Because the fingers and left in the flesh of the victim five holes like those from a pistol ball, and it, per and it pe penetrated until they almost met. There was no clue to the motive of the crime or its perpetrator. The police are making a thorough investigation. The following appeared in the same newspaper the next day. Mr. Pierre B., the victim of the frightful assault, of which we published an account yesterday, has regained consciousness after two hours of the most assiduous care by Dr. Bourdin. His life is not in danger, but is strongly feared that he has lost his reason. No trace has been found of his assailant. My poor friend was indeed insane. For seven months I visited him daily at the hospital where he, we had placed him, but he did not recover the light of reason. In his delirium, strange words escaped him, and, like old madmen, he had one fixed idea. He believed himself continuously pursued by a specter. One day they came for me in haste, saying he was worse, and when I arrived I found him dying. For two hours he remained very calm, then, suddenly, rising from his bed in spite of our efforts, he cried, waving his arms as if a prey of the most to the most awful terror. Take it away, take it away, it strangles me. Help, help. Twice he made the circuit of the room, uttering horrible screams, then fell face down, dead. As he was an orphan, I was charged to take his body to the little village of P in Normandy, where his parents were buried. It was the place from which he had arrived the evening he found us drinking punch in Louis R's room, where he had presented to us the flayed hand. His body was enclosed in a leaden coffin, and four days afterwards I walked sadly beside the old cure who had given him his first lessons to the little cemetery where they dug his grave. It was a beautiful day, and sunshine from a cloudless sky flooded the earth. Birds sang from the blackberry bushes, or many a time, when we were children, we had stolen to eat the fruit. Again I saw Pierre and myself creeping along behind the hedge and slipping through the gap that we knew so well down at the end of the little plot where they buried the poor. Again, we would return to the house with cheeks and lips black with the juice of the berries we had eaten. I looked at the bushes. They were covered with fruit. Mechanically, I picked some and brought it to my mouth. 
The cure had opened his bravery and was muttering his prayers in a low voice. I heard at the end of the walk the spades of the gravediggers who were opening the tomb. Suddenly they called out. The cure closed his book, and we went to see what they wished of us. They had found a coffin, and digging a stroke of the pickaxe, digging a stroke of the pickaxe had started to cover, and we perceived within a skeleton of unusual stature, lying on its back, its hollow eyes seeming to menace and defy us. I was troubled. I know not why, and almost afraid. Hold, cried one of the men. Look there. One of the rascal's hands has been severed at the wrist, and here it is. And he picked up. He picked it up from beside the body, a huge withered hand, and held it out for us. See, cried the other, laughing. See how he glares at you as if, as if he would spring at your throat to make you give him back his hand. Go, said the cure. Leave the dead in peace and close the coffin. We'll make poor Pierre's grave elsewhere. The next day all was finished, and I returned to Paris, after having left fifty francs with the old cure for masses to be said for the repose of the soul of him whose citizenship we had troubled. That's the end of that one. The next one is The Vengeance of a Tree by owner F. Lewis. Through the windows of Jim Daly's saloon in a little town of C, the setting sun streamed in yellow patches, lighting up the glasses scattered on the tables and the faces of several men who were gathered near the bar. Farmers, mostly they were, with a sprinkling of shopkeepers, while prominent among them was the village editor, and all were discussing a startling piece of news that had spread through the town and its surroundings. The tidings that Walter Stedman, a laborer on Albert Kelsey's ranch, had assaulted and murdered his employer's daughter, had reached them, and had spread universally horror among the people. A farmer declared that he had seen the deed committed as he walked through a neighboring lane, and having always been noted for his cowardice, instead of running to the girl's aid, had hailed a party of miners who were returning from their midday meal through a field nearby. When they reached the spot, however, where Stedman, as they supposed, had done his black deed, only the girl lay there in the stillness of death. Her murderer had taken the opportunity to fly. The party had searched the woods of the Kelsey estate, and just as they were nearing the house itself, the appearance of Walter Stedman, walking in a strangely unsteady manner toward it, made them quicken their pace. He was soon in custody, although he had protested his innocence of the crime. He said that he had just seen the body himself on his way to the station, and that when they had found him, he was going to the house for help. But they had laughed at his story and had flung him into the tiny, stifling calaboose of the town. I think it's a jail. What were their proofs? Walter Stedman, a young fellow of about 26, had come from the city to the quiet town <clears throat> just when times were at their hardest in search of work. The most of the men living in the town were honest fellows, doing their work faithfully, when they could get it. And when they had socially asked Stedman to have a drink with them, he had refused it in rather a scornful manner. That infernal city chap, he was called, and their hate and envy increased in strength when Albert Kelsey had employed him in the preference to any of themselves. As time went on, the story of Stedman's admiration for Margaret Kelsey had gone afloat. With the added information that his employer's daughter had repulsed him, saying that she would not marry a common laborer. So Stedman, when this news reached his employer's ears, was discharged, and this, then, was his revenge. For them, these proofs were sufficient to pronounce him guilty. Yet, that afternoon, as Stedman crouched on the floor of the calaboose, 
grew hopeless in the knowledge that no one would believe his story, and that his undeserved punishment would be swift and sure. A tramp, boarding a freight car several miles from the town, sped away from the spot where his crime had been committed, and knew that forever its shadow would follow him. From the tiny window of his prison, Walter Stedman could see the red glow of the heavens that, that betokened the setting of the sun. So the red sun of his life was soon to set, a life that had been innocent of all crime, and that now was to be ended for a, de for a deed that he had never committed. Most prominent of all the visions that swept through his mind was that of Margaret Kelsey, lying as he had first found her, fresh from the hands of a murderer. But there was another of a more tender nature. How long he and Margaret had tried to keep their secret until Walter could be promoted to a higher position, so that he could ask for her hand with no fear of the father's antagonism. Then came the remembrance of an afternoon meeting between the two in the woods of the Kelsey estate. How, just as they were parting, Walter had heard footsteps near them, and, glancing sharply around, saw an evil, scowling, murderous face peering through the brush. He had started towards it, but the old man of the countenance had taken himself hurriedly off. The gossiping townspeople had misconstrued this romance, and when Albert Kelsey had heard of this clandestine meeting from the man who was later on to appear as leader of the mob, and that he had discharged Stedman. They had believed that the young man had formally proposed and then been rejected. But justice had gone wrong, as it had done so in innumerable times before, and then again. An innocent man was to be hanged, even without the comfort of a trial, while the man who was guilty was free to wander where he would. That autumn night, the darkness came quickly, and only, star, and, and only the stars did their best to light the scene. A body of men, all masked, and having as a leader one who had ever since Stedman's arrival in town, cherished a secret hatred of the young man, dragged Stedman from the calaboose, and tramped through the town, defying all, defying even God himself. Along the highway and into Farmer Brown's crosscut, they went, vigilantly guarding the prisoner, who, with the lanterns lighting up his haggard face, walked among them with the lagging step under, of under hopelessness. That's a good tree, the leader said, presently stopping and pointing out a spreading oak. When the slip knot was adjusted and Stedman had stepped out of the box, he added, If you've got anything to say, you'd better say it now. I'm innocent, I swear before God, the new man answered. I never took the life of Margaret Kelsey. Give us your proof, jeered the leader, and when Stedman kept a despairing, a despairing silence, he laughed shortly. Ready, men, he gave the order. The box was kicked aside, and then... Stedman was unalived. In front of the men stood their leader, watching the contortions of Stedman. I'll tell you a secret, boys, he said suddenly. I was after the poor murder girl myself. Ain't there any little chance I had. But, by, slash, slash, he had just as little. A pause, then. He shunted, he shunted this earth. Cut him down, you fellows. It's no use, son. I'll give up the blasted thing as a bad job. There's something queer about that, that there tree. Do you see how its branches balance it? We'll have cut the trunk nearly in two, but it won't come down. There's plenty of others around. We'll take one of them. If all the long rope would be, I'd get that tree down. And yet, the way the thing stands, it would probably be risking a fellow's life to climb it. It's got the devil in it for sure. So old Farmer Brown shouldered his axe and made for another tree, his son following. They had sawed and chopped and chopped and sawed, and yet the tall white oak, with its branches jutting out almost as regularly as if done by the work of a machine, stood straight and firm. Farmer Brown, well known for his weak, cowardly spirit, who, in beholding the murder of Albert Kelsey's daughter, had, in his fright, mistaken the criminal 
Now, in a superstition, let the oak stand, because its well-balanced position saved it from falling. When other trees would have been down. And so this tree, the same one to which an innocent man had been unalived, was left for other work. It was a bleak, rainy night, such a night as can be found only in central California. The wind howled like a thousand demons, and lashed the trees together in wild embraces. Now and then, the weird hoot-hoot of an owl came softly from the distance in the lows of the storm, while the barking of coyotes woke the echoes of the hills into sounds like fiendish laughter. In the wind and rain, a man fought his path through the bush and into Farmer Brown's cross-cut as the shortest way home. Suddenly, he stopped, trembling, as if held by some unseen impulse. Before him rose the white oak, wavering and swaying in the storm. Good God, it's the tree I swung Stedman from, he cried, and a strange fear thrilled him. His eyes were fixed on it, held by some undefinable fascination. Yes, there, on one of those longest branches, a small piece of rope still dangled. And then, to the murderer's excited vision, the rope seemed to lengthen, to form the end into a slipknot, a knot that encircled the man's neck. Bob and the body swayed. Damn him, he muttered, starting toward the hanging form, as if about to help the rope in his work of strangulation. Will he forever follow me? And yet he deserved it. The black-hearted villain, he took her life. He never finished the sentence. The white oak, towering above him in his strength, seemed to grow like a frenzied living creature. There was a sudden splitting sound, then came a crash, and under the fallen tree lay Stedman's murderer, crushed and mangled. From between the broken trunk and the stump that was left, a gray dim shape sprang out and sped past the man's still form, away into the wind, away into the wild blackness of the night. Okay. The Parlor Cargos, unknown author. All draped with blue denim, the seaside cottage of my friend, Sarah Pine, she asked me to go there with her when she opened it to have it set in order for the summer. She confessed that she felt a trifle nervous at the idea of entering it alone. And I am always ready for an excursion. So much blue denim rather than so much blue denim rather surprised me, because blue is not complimentary to Sarah's complexion. She always wears some shade of red by preference. She perceived by wonder. She is very nearsighted and therefore sees everything by some sort of sixth sense. You know you do not like my portieres and curtains or table covers, she said. Neither do I, but I did it to accommodate. And now he rests well in his grave, I hope. Who's grave for pity's sake? Mr. J. Burlington Prices. And who is he? He doesn't sound interesting. Then I will tell you about him, said Sarah, taking a seat directly in front of one of those curtains. Last autumn I was leaving this place for New York, traveling on the fast express train known as the Flying Yankee. Of course I thought of the Flying Dutchman and Wagner's musical setting of the Uncanny Legend and how different things were in those days of steam, etc., then I looked out the window at the landscape, the horizon, that seemed to wheel in a great curve as the train sped on. Every now and then, I had an impression at the tail of the eye that a man was sitting in a chair, three or four numbers in front of me, on the opposite side of the car. Each time that I saw the shape, I looked at the chair and ascertained that it was unoccupied. But, I was, but it was an odd trick of vision. I raised my, my, I raised my long, my, my, my lorgnette, L-O-R-G-E-N, L-O-R-G-N-E-T-T, and the chair showed emptier than before. There was nobody in it, certainly. But the more I knew, 
that it was vacant the more plainly I saw the man, always with the corner of my eye. It made me nervous. When passengers entered the car, I dreaded lest they might take that seat. What would happen if they should? A bag was put in the chair. That made me uncomfortable. The bag was removed at the next station. Then a baby was placed in the seat. It be began to laugh as though someone had gently tickled it. There was something odd about that chair. Thirteen was its number. When I looked away from it, the impression was strong upon me that some person sitting there was watching me. Really? It would not do to humor such fancies. So I touched the electric button, asking the porter to bring me a table, and taking from my bag a pack of cards, proceeded to divert myself with a game of patience. I was, puzz I was puzzling where to put the seven of spades. Where can it go? I remembered to myself. A voice behind me prompted, Play the four of diamonds on the five, and you can do it. I started. The only occupants of the car besides me were a bridal couple, a mother with three little children, and a typical preacher of one of the greatest sects. Who had spoken? Play up the four, mad ma madam, repeated his voice. Play up the four, madam, repeated his voice. I looked fearfully over my shoulder, and I saw a bluish cloud, like cigar smoke, but inodorous. Then the vision cleared, and I saw a young man, whom I knew by a subtle intuition to be the occupant, seen and not seen, of chair number 13. Evidently, he was a traveling salesman and a ghost. Of course, a drummer's ghost sounds ridiculous. They're so extremely alive. Or else you would expect the dead drummer to be particularly dead and not walk. This was a most commonplace-looking ghost, cordial, pushing, pushing business-like. At the same time, his face had an expression of utter despair and horror, which made him still more prosperous, which made him still more preposterous. Of course, it is not nice to let a stranger speak to one, even on so personal a topic as a four of diamonds. But a ghost, there can't be any rule of etiquette about talking with a ghost. My dear, it was dreadful. That former creature showed me how to play all the cards, and then begged me to lay them out again, in order that he might give me some clever points. I was too much amazed and disturbed to speak. I could only place the cards at his suggestion. This I did so, thus I did so, and not to appear to be listening to the empty air, and be supposed to be crazy woman. Presently the ghost spoke again and told me his story. Madam, he said, I have been riding back and forth on this car ever since February 22nd, 189, whatever. Seven months and eleven days. All this time, I have not exchanged a word with anyone. For a drummer, that is pretty hard, you may believe. You know the story of the Flying Dutchman? Well, that is very nearly my case. A curse is upon me and will not be removed until some kind soul... Ah, but I'm getting ahead of my text. That day there were four of us, traveling for different houses. One of the boys was in wool, one in baking powder, one in boots and shoes, and myself in cotton goods. We met on the road, took seats together, and fell into talking shop. Those fellows told big lies about their sales, Washington's birthday though it was. The baking powder man raised the amount of the bills of goods which he had sold better than a whole can of stuff could have done. I admitted the straight truth that I had not yet been able to make a sale, and then I swore, not in a light-minded chipper style of verbal trimmings, but a great round of heaven-defying oath, that I would sell a case of blue denims on that day if it took me forever. We became dry with talk, and when the train stopped at the river mouth, we went out to have some beer. It is good there, you know. Pardon me. I forgot that I was speaking to a lady. Well, we had to run to get aboard. I missed my footing, fell under the wheels, and the next thing I know, they were holding an inquest over my remains. Well, I, uh, well, I...
Puss and Bow was sitting on the corner of the Undertaker's table, wondering which of the coroner's jury was likely the one in case of blue denims. Then I remembered my wicked oath, and understood that I was a sole doomed wanderer until I could succeed in selling that bill of goods. I spoke once or twice, offering the denims under value, but nobody noticed me. Verdict, accidental death, negligence of deceased. Roman corporation not to blame. Deceased got out for beer at his own risk. The other drummers took charge of the remains and wrote a beautiful letter to my relatives about my social qualities and my impressive conversation. I wish it had been less impressive that time. I might have lied about my sales, or I might have said that I hoped for better luck. But after the oath, there was nothing for it. Back and forth, back and forth on this road, in a chair number 13, to all eternity. Nobody suspects my presence. They sit on my knees. I'm playing. I'm playing in luck when it's a nice baby, and it was this afternoon. They pile wraps, bags, and available literature on me. They play cards under my nose, and what differs some of them are, you, madam, are the first person who has perceived me, and therefore I venture to speak to you, meaning no offense. I can see that you are sorry for me. Now, if you recall the story of the Flying Dutchman, he was saved by the charity of a good woman, in fact. Santa Maria, yeah. Now, I'm not asking anything of that size. I see that you wear a wedding ring, and no doubt you make some man's happiness. I wasn't a marrying man myself, and naturally am not a marrying ghost. And that has nothing to do with the matter anyway. But if you could, I don't suppose you would have any use for them. But if you were disposed to do a turn of good, solid Christian charity, I should be everlastingly grateful, and you may have that case of denims at seventy-two fifty, and that quality is quoted today at eighty dollars. Does it go, madam? The speech of the poor ghost was not very eloquent, but his eyes had intense had an intense eager glare, which was terrible. Something, pity, fear, I do not know what, compelled me. I decided to do without that white and gold evening cloak. Instead, that white and gold evening cloak. Instead, I gave seventy-two fifty to the ghost and took from him a receipt for the sum signed by J. Billington Price. Then he smiled contentedly, thanked me with emotion, and returned to chair number 13. Several times on the journey, although I did not perceive him again, I felt dazed. When the train arrived in New York, and I, with the other passengers, dismounted, it seemed to me that a strong hand passed under my elbow, steadying me down the steps. As I walked the length of the station, my bag, not heavy at any time, appeared to become weightless. I believe that the parlor car ghost walked beside me, carrying the bag, whose handle still remained in my other hand. Indeed, once or twice, I thought I felt the touch of cold fingers against mine. Since then, I have no reason to suppose that the poor ghost is not at rest. I hope he is. But I never expected no wish for the blue denims. The next day, however, a dray belonging to a great wholesale house backed up to our door and delivered a case of denims, with a receipted bill for the same. What was I to do? I could not go about selling blue denims. I could not give them away without exciting, without exciting comment. So I furnished the cottage with them. And you know the effect of my complexion. Pity me, dear, and credit me, frivolous woman as I am, was having saved a soul at the expense of my own vanity. My story is told. What do you think about it? Okay. So the next story is The Ghost of Buckstown Inn by Arnold M. Anderson. Several travel-worn drummers. I'm going to say it now. After reading this other story, obviously salesmen. 
Ooh, my new chair's creaky too. I'm on a new chair today. Several travel worn, travel worn drummers sat in the lobby exchanging yarns. It was Rodney Green's turn, and he looked wise and began his tale. I don't claim, by any means, that the belief in ghosts is a general thing in Arkansas. But I do say that I had an experience out there a few years ago. It was late in the fall, and I happened to be in the village of Buckstown, which desecrates a very limited portion of the state. The town is about as small and dirty a place as I ever saw, and the Buckstown Inn is not much above the general character of the place. The region is inhabited by natives who still cling to all sorts of foolish superstitions. The inn, in the antebellum days, was kept by one who was said to be the meanest and most crabbed of mortals. The old demon was as miserly as he was mean, and all, all his narrow life he hoarded his filthy lucre with fiendish greed. Report had it also that he had even murdered his patrons in their beds for their money. What the facts actually were I don't know, but even to this day the old man is held in suspicion. A lingering effect of former horrors still clouds its, its memory. The present proprietor, Bunk Watson, his real name is Bunker, I believe, is an altogether different sort of chap, a southern type, in fact, one of those shiftless, heedless, happy-go-lucky mortals who love strong whiskey and who chews an enormous quid of black tobacco and smokes a corncob pipe at the same time. When the former keeper, keeper shuffled, the, shuffled off, his property fell to a distant relative, the present keeper, who, with his family, immediately moved in from the neighboring hamlet and took possession. It was well known that the old proprietor had accumulated considerable wealth during his sojourn among the living, but all efforts to discover any treasure upon the premises had failed, and now the idea of ever finding it was practically given up. As far as Bunk was concerned, the matter troubled him little. He had a hard-working wife who ran things the best she could under the circumstances, and saw that his meals were forthcoming at their respective intervals. What more could he wish? Why should he care if there was a treasure buried upon his place? Indeed, it would have been a sore puzzle for him to know what to do with a fortune, unless perhaps his wife came to his aid. Among the stories that hovered in the history of Buckstown Inn was one which involved a ghost. In the room where the former keeper had died, peculiar noises were heard at unearthly hours, sighing, moaning, and, in fact, all the other indications which point to the existence of ghosts were said to be present. On account of this, the chamber had long since been abandoned. I listened with keen interest to the wonderful tales about the haunted room, and then suddenly resolved to investigate, to sleep in that chamber that very night, and see for myself all that was to be seen. I told Buck of my purpose. He shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, but instead of warning me off and offering a flood of protest, as I expected, he merely took his pipe from his mouth, let it fly a quarter or so of yellowish juice, oh, no, yikes, took his pipe from his mouth, let fly a quarter or so of yellowish juice from between a pair of brown-stained lips, and, opening one corner of his wide mouth, lazily called out, Jane. His wife appeared, and he intimated that I should settle the matter with the old woman. The prospect of a fee persuaded the wife, and off she went to arrange for my bed in that ill-fated room. At nine o'clock that evening, I bid the family good night, took my candle, ascended the rickety stairs, and entered the chamber of horrors. The atmosphere was heavy and had a peculiar odor that was not at all pleasing. However, I latched the door and was soon in bed. Having, having propped myself up with pillows, I was prepared to await the coming of the ghosts. Overhead, the dusty rafters 
which had once experienced a sensation of being whitewashed, but which were now a dirty yellowish color or hung with fantastical little cobwebs. The flickering light of the candle reflected upon the walls and against the ceiling a pyramid of grotesque shapes. And with this effect being continually disturbed by the swaying cobwebs, the whole caused the room to appear rather ghostly after all, and especially so to an imaginative mind. I waited and waited for hours, it seemed, but still no ghost. Perhaps I was afraid of my candlelight, so I blew it out. No sooner had I done this and settled back in bed again than a white hand appeared through the door, then a whole figure. At last the ghost had come, a white and sheeted ghost. It had come right through the door, although it was locked, and now it advanced towards the bed. Raising its long white arm, it pointed a bony finger at me and then commanded, Come with me. Thereupon it turned to the door, while instantly I jumped out of bed to follow. Some unseen power compelled me to obey. The door flew open and the ghost led me down the stairs, through long halls, into the cellar, through mysterious underground corridors, upstairs again, and in and out of rooms which I never dreamed were to be found in that old rambling inn. Finally, through a small door in the rear, we left the house. I was in my sleeping garments, but no matter, I had to follow. The white form, with a slow and measured tread, and as silent as death, led the way to the orchard. There, under the tree at the farther end, I pointed to the ground. It pointed to the ground, and the same ghostly tones before you said, Here you will find a great treasure buried. The ghost then disappeared, and I saw it no more. I stood dazed and trembling. Upon recovering my wits, I started to dig, but the chill of the night air and the, and the scantiness of my night robes made such labor impractical. So I decided to leave some mark to identify the place and come around again at daybreak. I reached up and broke off a limb, overcome of my night's evolutions. Oh, I'm sorry, overcome of my night's exertions. I slept the next morning until a loud rapping on my door and croaking voice warned me that it was noon. I had intended to leave Buckstown in that day, but, prompted by curiosity and anxious to investigate, I unpacked my, my grip sack for a comfortable stay. You must understand that this was my first experience with a ghost, and I feared I might never see another. At breakfast, my landlady waited on me in silence, though, once I detected her eyes following me with a peculiar expression. She wanted to ask me how I enjoyed the night, but I would not gratify her by volunteering a word. My host was more outspoken. Reckon you didn't get much sleep, said he, with a queer smile. Did you hear anything, I asked? Well, I did, yes, he said, with a drawl. But you didn't disturb me any. I knew you'd have trouble when you went in that room for sleep. That afternoon, I slipped out the tree. I slipped out to the tree, but to my amazement, I found that the twig I had broken from the branches was gone. Finally, I found on the lower trunk of an apple tree an open place from which a small branch had evidently been wrestled. But on looking further, I discovered that every apple tree in the orchard had been similarly disfigured. More mysterious than ever, I but tonight. Uh, more mysterious than ever, I said, but tonight shall decide. That night I pleaded weariness, which no one seemed inclined to question, and sought my couch earlier. Go to try again, eh? asked my host. Yes, I'll stay all winter, but what I'll get even with that, but, but, okay, I'll stay all winter, but what I'll get even with that ghost, I said. That night I kept the candle burning until midnight, when I blew it out. Instantly the room was flooded with a soft light, and at the foot of the bed stood my ghost, the identical ghost of last night. Again the bony finger beckoned, and a voice whispered, Follow me. I sprang from the bed, but the, 
Think you're darting ahead of me. It flew through the doorway down the stairs, and I after it. At the foot of the staircase, an unseen hand reached forward and caught my foot, and I fell sprawling headlong. But in a, sec a second, I was on my feet and pursuing the ghost. It had gained on me a few yards, but I was quicker. And just as we reached the outside door, I nearly touched his robes. They sent a chill through my frame, and I nearly gave up the pursuit. As it passed through the doorway, it turned and gave me one look. And I caught the same malignant light in its eyes that I remembered from the night before. In the open orchard, I felt sure I could catch it. But my ghost had no intention of allowing me any such opportunity. To my disgust, it darted backward into the house, slamming the door in my face. In my frenzy of fear and chagrin, I threw myself against the oaken door with such force that its rusty little hinges yielded, and I landed in the big front room of the inn, just in time to see the white skirts of the ghost flow up the stairs. Upstairs I flew after it, and into an old chamber. There, huddled in the corner, I saw it. In a minute's delay, it had secured a lighted candle, and, as I entered, it advanced to daunt me, with bony arm upraised to great height. Caught, I cried, throwing my arms around the figure, and I had made the acquaintance of a real life ghost. The white robes fell, and I saw reveal and I saw revealed my hostess of Buckstown Inn. Next morning, when I threatened to call the police, she confessed to me that she masqueraded us as the ghost to draw visitors to the out of the way old place, and that she found its tale being haunted highly profitable to her. So there you have it. The next one, an unknown author, is The Burglar's Ghost. Let me have a little sip of water, and we shall continue. I'm not an imaginative man, and no one you who knows me can say that I have ever indulged in sentimental ideas upon any subject. I'm rather predisposed, in fact, to look at everything from a purely practical standpoint. And this quality has been further developed in me by the fact that for 20 years I have been an active member of the detective police force at Westford, a large town in one of our most important manufacturing districts. A policeman, as most people will readily believe, has to deal with so much practical life that he has small opportunity for developing other than practical qualities, and he is more apt to believe in tangible things than in ideas of a somewhat superstitious nature. However, I was once under the firm conviction that I had been largely helping up the, that I largely helped up the ladder of life by the ghost of a once well-known burglar. I have told the story to many, and have heard it commented upon in various fashions. Whether the comments were satirical or practical, it made no difference to me. I had a firm faith at that time in the truth of my tale. Eighteen years ago, I was a plainclothes officer at Westford. I was then twenty-three years of age, and very anxious about two matters. First and foremost, I desired promotion. Second, I wished to be married. Of course, I was more eager about the second than the first, because my sweetheart, Alice Moore, was one of the prettiest and cleverest girls in the town. But I put promotion first for the simple reason <clears throat> that with me promotion must come before marriage. Knowing this, I was always on the lookout for a chance of distinguishing myself, and I paid such attention to my duties that my superiors began to notice me and foretold a successful career for me in the future. One evening, in the last week of September, 1873, I was sitting in my lodgings wondering what I could do to earn a promotion, which I so earnestly waited for. Things were quite were quiet just then in Westford, and I'm afraid I half wished that something dreadful might occur if I only could have a share in it. 
I was pursuing this train of thought when I suddenly heard a voice say, Good evening, officer. I turned sharply around. It was almost dusk, and my lamp was not lighted. For all that, I could see clearly enough a man who was sitting by a chest drawers that stood between the door and the window. His chair stood between the drawers and the door, and I concluded that he had quietly entered the room and seated himself before addressing me. Good evening, I replied. I didn't hear you come in. He laughed when I said that, a low chuckling, rather sly laugh. No, he said, I to say not, officer. I'm a very quiet sort of person. You might say, in fact, noiseless, just so. I looked at him narrowly, feeling considerably surprised and astonished at his presence. He was a thickly built man with a square face and a heavy chin. His nose was small but aggressive. His eyes were little and overshadowed by heavy eyebrows. I could see them twinkle when he spoke. As for his dress, it was in keeping with his face. He wore a rough suit of woolen, or free as a, I don't know, F-R-I-E-Z-E, a thick, gaily-colored belt or neckerchief encircled his bull-like throat, and in his big hands he continually twirled and twisted a fur cap, made apparently out of the skin of some favorite dog. As he sat there smiling at me and saying nothing, it made me feel uncomfortable. What do you want with me, I asked. Just another matter of business, he answered. You should have gone to the office, I said. We're not supposed to do business at home. Right you are, Gov, no more, he replied. Oh, sorry. Right you are, Governor. He replied, but I wanted to see you. It's you that's got to do my job. If I had seen the superintendent, he might have put some, somebody else on it. That wouldn't suit me. You see, officer, you're young, and not a naturally eager, like for promotion, eh? What is it you want, I inquired again. Ain't you eager to be promoted? He reiterated. Ain't you now, officer? I saw no reason why I should conceal the fact, even from this strange visitor. I admitted that I was eager for promotion. Ah, he said, with a satisfied smile, I'm glad of that. It'll make you all the keener. Now, officer, you listen to me. I'm going to put you on to a nice little job. Ah, I just say, you'll be a sergeant before long. You will. You'll be complimented and praised for your clever conduct in this affair. Mark my words, if you ain't. Out with it, I said, fancying I saw through the man's meaning. You're going to split on some of your pals. You're going to split on some of your pals, I suppose, and you'll want a reward. He shook his head. A reward? He said, wouldn't be no use to me at all. No, nope, not if it was a thousand pounds. No, it ain't nothing to do with reward. But now, officer, did you ever hear of Light Toad Jim? Light Toad Jim. I should have been a poor detective if I had not. Why, the man known under that name, was one of the cleverest burglars and thieves in England, and had enjoyed such a famous career that his name was a household word. At that moment, there was an additional interest attached to him. He had been convicted of burglary at the Northminster Assizes in 1871, and sentenced to ten years' penal servitude. After serving nearly two years of his time, he had escaped from Portland, getting away in such a clever fashion that he had never been heard of since. Where he was, no one could say, but lately there had been a strong suspicion among police that Light Toad Jim was at his old tricks again. Light Toad Jim, I repeated. I should think so. Why, what do you know about him? He smiled and nodded his head. Light Toad Jim, said he, as a whispered at this ear identical moment. Listen to me, officer. Light Toad Jim is a going to crack a crib tonight. Said crib is the mansion said crib is the mansion of Miss Singleton. 
that rich old lady that lives out on Mapleton Road. You know her. Awfully rich. But not by one of servants and animals about the place. There's some very valuable plate there. That's what Lady Toad Jim is after. He'll get in through the discovery window about 1 a.m. Then he'll pass through the back and front kitchens. And even the butler's pantry, only as the butler is, because there ain't no men at all. And there he'll set to work on the safe. Some of his late pals in Portland gave him the tip about this job. How did you come to hear of it, I asked. Never mind, Governor. You wouldn't understand. Now I want you to be up there tonight, and I don't nab like Toad Jim, red-handed, so to speak. It'll mean promotion for you, and it'll suit me down to the ground. He wants to be about, and to watch him enter. Then follow him and dog him. And be armed, officer, for Jim will fight like a tiger if you don't draw his teeth first. Now look here, my man, said I. This is all very well, but it's all irregular. You must just tell me who you are and how you come to be in light toad Jim's secrets, and I'll put it down in black and white. I turned away from him to get my writing materials. I was not half a minute with my back, with my back to him, but when I turned around, he was gone. The door was shut, but I heard no sound from it either opening or shutting. Quick as though, quick as thought, I darted to it, tore it wide open, and looked down the narrow staircase. There was no one there. I ran hastily downstairs, into the passage, and found my landlady, Mrs. Mariner, standing at the open door with a female friend. Mrs. Mariner, I said, breaking in upon the conversation. Which way did that man go who came downstairs just now? Mrs. Mariner looked at me strangely. There ain't been no man come downstairs, Mr. Parker, she said. Leastways, not that, not this good three quarters of an hour, which being Miss, Mrs. Higgins here, as it come to take an airing, her having been ironing all this blessed day, has been standing here all the time and ain't never seen a soul. Nonsense, I said. A man came down from my room just now, the man who set up twenty minutes since. Mrs. Mariner looked at me with an expression betokening the most profound astonishment. Mrs. Higgins sighed deeply. Sorry, I am, am I to say it, sir, but you're either intoxicated or else you're a sick, sickening for brain fever, sir. There ain't no person entered this door in a route. For nigh unto an hour, as me and Mrs. Higgins, right here, will take our Bible oaths on. I went upstairs and looked in the rooms on either side of mine. The man was not there. Hang on, I got something right in the middle of our reading. Hang on. Wow, where'd this come from? Okay. Ah. Uh-oh. Hang on, you guys. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. We got problems. Hang on, I just clicked off something. Okay. There, finally. It's one of those days. Okay, I've got another minute going. The man was not there. I looked under my bed, and of course he was not there. He must have gone downstairs, but then the women must have seen him. There was only one door to the house. I gave it up in despair and began to smoke my pipe. By the time I had drawn the last whiff, I decided that if anyone was intoxicated, it was probably Mrs. Mariner and Mrs. Higgins, and that my strange visitor had departed by the door. I was not going to believe that he had anything supernatural about him. I had no duty that night, and as the hours wore on, I found myself stirred in my resolve to go to Miss Singleton's house and see what I could make out of my informant's story. It was my opinion that my late visitor was born, pal of light, uh, a pal of Lito Jin, and that having become aware of the latter's plot, he had some reason of his own, decided to split on his own chum. Through this disagreement is an honest man's opportunity, and I determined to solve the, the truth of the story, 
that was told me, unless it should come to nothing. I decided not to report the matter to my chief. If I could really capture Lighto Jim, my success would be all the more brilliant by being suddenly sprung upon authorities. Okay, that's where I'm stopping today. All right. I want to thank everybody for coming. I know it's Sunday, and I want to thank every one of you. But uh, now I'm done, you guys can go back to relaxing and get ready to go to work tomorrow. That four-letter word, right? Uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hate the show, share it with five of your enemies. You know, we're just trying to get the word out about this show. Tomorrow, my guest is going to be George Metrovic, and we're going to be talking Bigfoot. Bigfoot around the world. I think you'll be surprised at some of the locations that Bigfoot has been seen. Other than like Northern California and Washington, there's a lot of other places. Okay, well, guys, I'll see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening, everyone. It hurt me. Oh, God, i got to cut the back off. Okay, we'll have to take it down to Corral. It's in an hour anyway. We can just upload it. Yeah, okay, let's do this. I'll take it.